0: The teaching text comes today from Acts chapter 8. This will be page 4 in your bulletin. You can turn there. I'll read to you starting from verse 5. All right, page 4. I'll read to you starting from verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he, was, he himself was somebody great. of the Samaritans. This is the word of God. So the story we just read is a pivotal moment in the history of the church. This is a pivotal moment in the life of the church, because this is the moment when the church becomes, for the very first time, multi-ethnic. This is the moment when the church, for the very first time, stops being an exclusively Jewish movement, an exclusively Jewish church, and it begins to embrace and encompass all the different ethnic groups in the Roman Empire. Now, we know from reading the New Testament, and we know just simply from studying church history, that the church was filled with Gentiles, with non-Jews. And we can sort of imagine that it was all inevitable, right? Didn't Jesus command his disciples go and proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? But you see, we forget. We underappreciate how difficult it was for the Jewish believers to actually do this, to actually go out there and to preach the gospel to their enemies and to let go of their old prejudices. And... And we don't appreciate how difficult it was for the Gentiles to believe the gospel from these Jewish believers. And so it went both ways, right? And so this story is remarkable on two levels. It's remarkable that the Samaritans would let go of their old beliefs and customs to become Christians. And it's remarkable that the Jews would let go of their beliefs and customs and embrace the Samaritans as fellow believers. You see, this is an astonishing, breathtaking moment. You know, in the Roman Empire, it was filled with all these different ethnic groups, but they hated each other. They were at war with each other. They were trying to kill each other. And here we see, through the gospel, Jew and Samaritan becoming one people, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. That's amazing. How did that happen? And so we're going to take a look at that. In order to answer that question, we're going to go back in time and re-enter the ancient world of the Samaritans. We're going to enter into the ancient world of magic. And hopefully, through the eyes of the Samaritans, we'll be able to listen with fresh ears and see with fresh eyes the gospel that Philip preached. And maybe, just maybe, we will also have some of that wonder, some of that awe that they must have experienced as they heard the gospel preached. All right, so here's the outline, three points. Point number one, we're going to look at the theology of magic. Point number two, we're going to see that uh, the gospel is a gift to the Samaritans. And then point number three, we're going to see that the gospel is a gift to the Jews. All right, so point number one, the gospel is, uh, sorry, uh, point number one, the theology of magic. This story tells us, and we know from studying ancient sources, that the Samaritans believed in magic. And I don't mean that they believed in magic in a sense that they agreed that magic you know, spells work, like in a mechanical sense, but they believed in magic as a worldview, as a theology. Okay? Look with me to verse 10. It says, The Samaritans all paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest. And that word paid attention there is the Greek word prosaio. And proseo doesn't mean, you know, pay attention like the way you might pay attention to your college professor in, in the lecture hall, right? Like you're listening for information. But the word preseo means rapt attention. It means concentrated, focused attention. It's listening with your heart engaged. And it's the exact same word used in verse 6 when it says the Samaritans paid attention to the gospel Philip preached, right? So they're in parallel. So in other words, Magic had captured the heart of the Samaritans. And then notice again in verse 10 that the Samaritans all paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest. What does that tell us? It tells us that it wasn't just the common folk, you know, the uneducated peasantry who were duped by magic, but it was the educated cultural elites who embraced magic. And we know this from studying ancient sources that actually the elites embraced and believed in magic the most. Because you see, magic was widespread in the ancient world. It was in all aspects, all corners of society. And therefore, we should not be surprised that in Acts, as the gospel went out into the ancient world, it constantly encountered magic. There's something like a dozen different references to magic in the book of Acts. You may not know that. And let me just pull out one reference. In Acts chapter 13, Luke, right, who who wrote Acts, Luke tells us about Elemas, who, who was a magician. And Elemas, according to Luke, was a highly placed imperial official. He was the advisor to the Roman proconsul Paulus Sergius. In other words, magicians weren't just, you know, out there on the street hustling, Right? They were in the very highest echelons of government, right? Magic was everywhere. Magic was completely widespread. And then look at verse 11. It says, the Samaritans paid attention to Simon for a long time. Now, if we think that magic is you know, just a bag of tricks, it's just sleight of, of hand, then it is conceivable, right, that someone could fool the people for a short amount of time. But Luke tells us that this had been going on for years upon years, for decades. And therefore, clearly something else is going on. Clearly magic is not merely tricks and sleights of hand. What was it then? What was it that all of society embraced magic, including the elites? And the answer is that magic was a conduit between you and the supernatural world. Magic was a channel for you to communicate to the gods your needs. It was a kind of language, it was a way to appeal to the gods, it was a way to bargain with the gods. And you can use magic to ask the gods for anything in all aspects of your life. You know, finance, romance, you know, health. And you know, this is also abstract, so let me give you a real life example from the ancient world. Okay, this one actually, This I'm going to give you a real magic spell that we have from the ancient sources. This one comes from Cato the Elder. And I'll read it for you. Are you guys ready? All right. Cato the Elder wrote, if you have a bone dislocation, so this is a healing spell, okay? If you have a bone dislocation of any sort, it will be healed by this incantation. Take a green reed four or five feet long, split it down the middle, and have two men apply it to your hips. Begin the incantation. Motas Veta until the reeds come together wave a knife over the reed halves and when the two halves have met and are touching each other take them in your hand and cut it short on both right and left sides if the reed pieces are applied to the dislocation or the fracture it will heal use the incantation on a daily basis until the wound is fully healed now some of you are wondering how did that possibly heal anybody and the answer is that in the ancient world you always use both real medicine and magic. Okay? So they were always used both in combination. And magic here I define as the combination of words and ritual. And what's really interesting right, about this magic spell is the words. You know, The, the, magic, the magic words, they didn't mean anything. <laughs> they were nonsense words, or maybe more properly, they were uh, secret words, because in ancient magic. It didn't matter if the practitioner knew what he was saying. What was most important was was that he said it exactly correctly, that he pronounced it correctly, that he said it in the exact right order, Right, that he had to memorize and train, because magic was a way to transact with the gods. You see, it was a way to appeal to the gods through these esoteric rituals. And that spell that I just read was a relatively simple spell. We have spells from the ancient sources that took days to perform. We have potion recipes that involved over 30 different exotic uh, recipes, 30 different exotic ingredients from all over the Mediterranean world. We have magic spells, right, where you had to construct these extremely elaborate voodoo dolls, life-size voodoo dolls. Magic often involved wearing these very expensive amulets. Why? Because magic is a way to bargain with the gods. Magic was always very expensive. It was always time-consuming. It required great expertise. It required years and years of training. Why? Because that's what the gods demanded. That was the price you had to pay. Because magic was the currency the gods accepted. Do you see that? And therefore, you can see how magic was a worldview, a theology. That the blessings of the gods only came through strenuous effort. Right? You had to use these sometimes strange, sometimes esoteric, but always expensive efforts. And that's why Simon, in our story, offers Peter money. Now that strikes us as ridiculous, right? Simon, you want to say, how can you buy the Holy Spirit? But you see, in the ancient world, it was perfectly natural. It was perfectly natural because in the theology of magic, nothing is free. Everything comes at a cost. Now let's be honest, we do the exact same thing, right? We may not use uh, esoteric words, we may not use these elaborate uh, rituals, but we use our morality to bargain with God. And as I thought about it, you know, I think there are two ways that we can bargain with God. We can bargain with God actively and passively. Active bargaining is where you say to God, God, if I am good, If I go to church, if I read my Bible, then God, you will give me this, right? You'll let me go to that school. You'll give me that girlfriend. You'll give me that job. And then there's passive bargaining, right? Passive bargaining is, God, if I'm good, you won't strike me. You won't take away the good things that I have. You won't punish me. And I think, right, that most of us think that active bargaining is too crass. We dare not do it. But we do passive bargaining, right? We do passive bargaining. That's why we're so mad with God when bad things happen in our lives. Why are we mad? Because we have a little deal going on with God, right? And God is breaking his part of the deal. You see, we're just like the Samaritans. We don't believe that God's love and God's favor are free, but you have to bargain with God because nothing is free. Everything comes at a cost. So that's the first point, the theology of magic. And then the second point is the gospel is a gift to the Samaritans. Now, what was it about the gospel that was so attractive, that so wowed the Samaritans? And so let's look at the story. Luke tells us that Philip went to the city of Samaria. Now, who is Philip? Philip, if you remember, is one of the seven deacons appointed in the early church. And so he goes to the city, and he preaches the gospel, and the Samaritans believe right and it says if you notice he proclaimed the gospel he proclaimed christ and he healed the sick now let's pause there for a moment why were there so many sick people in the city why didn't simon use his magic to heal all of these sick people and i know some of you who are skeptical might be saying well that's because magic didn't work Right? Because, you know, magic doesn't work. Well, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. What's the answer? The answer is that the sick people were still sick because they were too poor to afford the healing. Do you see? For whatever reason, maybe they spent all, all their wealth pursuing a, a, a cure, but for whatever reason, the poor were poor because they were, I mean, sorry, the sick were sick because they were the poorest of the poor. But then Philip comes, and through the power of God, he heals them and right there you can almost you can see the attraction of the gospel, right? That Philip would heal both the rich and the poor. But that's not the whole story. That's not that that doesn't alone explain why the Samaritans believe the gospel. So what was it then? The real difference is the way Philip healed versus the way Simon healed. Okay? That's the difference. Now I know some of you are saying there's an actual difference. You know, maybe with those of you with a skeptical mind are saying, isn't it all kind of the same, right? Isn't it all kind of just like supernatural healings? Absolutely not. You see, when the Samaritans saw Philip heal, they would have been foolhard. They would have been flabbergasted. They would have been amazed. What was so amazing about the way Philip healed? Think about the miracles of Jesus. Last week we looked at Uh, Jesus healing the ten lepers, right? And what did Jesus do? Jesus tells the lepers, go and show yourselves to the priests, and they went and they were healed. Now, knowing what you know about magic, against the backdrop of magic, do you notice something strange about the way Jesus heals? Do you notice something missing in Jesus' healing? You see, all the time that Jesus heals in the New Testament... He never, he never has these rituals, these complex ceremonies, these, these uh, incantations, right? You never see Jesus roll up his sleeves and tell everyone, everyone stand back. This is going to be a lot of effort. You never see Jesus break a sweat. You never see Jesus wave his arms, right? And the same thing happens in the early church, Remember in Acts chapter 3, right, when Peter sees a, a lame man begging in the street, what happens? Let me read it for you, okay, it's very important. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's it. Peter takes the lame man by the hand, lifts him up, and the man is healed. We want to say, Peter, where are all the strenuous words and rituals? And there is none. And this would have been breathtaking for the ancient people to see. They had never seen anything like this. And what does this tell us? What did it tell the Samaritans? It tells the Samaritans that God's love and God's favor are free. You don't have to bargain. You don't have to pay for it. The very fact that the miracles of Philip were just so simple. That's it. You're healed. Told the Samaritans that God's grace is a gift. Do You see, and that, when they saw that, that freed them from the power and the theology of magic. You see, the miracles told the Samaritans that the gospel is a gift. You don't earn it, but you receive it freely. And that's why Peter says to Simon, and this is the pivotal verse in the whole story. In verse 20, Peter says to Simon, "You can't buy the gift of God with money. Why? Because it's a gift. I mean, if it was your friend's birthday and you bought a gift and you wrapped it up and you gave it to him and he, and he you know, he opens it up, he's ah, oh, this is this is what a wonderful gift. How much do I owe you? You would say, what?" This is a gift! By offering me money, you're insulting the gift. You're insulting me because it's a gift. You see, the gospel doesn't work the way magic works. It's a gift, it's free. Now, let me apply this, and and this is going to be very quick, all right, because, you know, for the sake of time, I see two points of application here. Number one, how do we receive this gift of the gospel? How did the Samaritans receive the gift? Look with me to verse 8. Luke writes that there was much joy in that city. You see, if you believe that God's love and favor is a free gift, there will be this tremendous explosion of joy in your life. You see, because gospel belief goes hand in hand with gospel joy. And if there is no gospel joy in your life, you should really ask yourself, is there a gospel belief? Or are you really still relating to God on the basis of transactions, on the basis of your works? Okay? That's the first point. Second point is, let's look at the example of Philip in the early church. If you look at the example of Philip in the early church, you see that they went out. That Jesus commanded them to preach the gospel to everyone in the whole world, and so they went out. They're even preaching to their enemies. And the question for us, the important question is, does that commandment still stand? And the answer is, Yes. The task is still unfinished. And so therefore, will we not also go and share the good news with our co-workers, with our neighbors, with our friends? You see, Philip in the early church did this at the cost of everything. It cost them their material goods. It cost them their reputations. It cost them their very lives. But what will it cost us? Maybe some embarrassment. Maybe it'll create some awkward moments. Uh, maybe it'll cost us our comfort, but will we not also obey? All right, so that's the second point. The gospel is a gift to the Samaritans. The third point is the gospel is a gift to the Jews. Look at the story. Something very, very strange is going on. Do you not agree? Luke tells us that the Samaritans believe the gospel, they're baptized, But then Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Now that is very, very strange, because this is the only place in the New Testament where this happens. Because belief and the Spirit always go hand in hand. So what is going on here in our story? Why is this time different? And the answer is the Spirit delays for the sake of the Jewish believers. You see, from the perspective of the Jewish believers, the Samaritans... Were pagans. The Samaritans did not keep the Mosaic covenant. They did not keep the clean laws. In fact, they were barred from the temple. Did you know that? They were not acceptable before the presence of God. And so when the Jerusalem church heard the reports that the Samaritans had believed the gospel, the question on everyone's mind was is that possible? Is it possible for the Samaritans to be in the kingdom of God? And so what do they do? They send Peter and John, the leading apostles in the church, to go and investigate. And so Peter and John go, and they arrive in Samaria, and when they arrive, then and there, the Spirit falls on the Samaritans. Now some of you are wondering, this is kind of a side note, but some of you are wondering, how did Peter and John know that the Spirit fell? Well, um, in the early church, in the book of Acts, the Spirit was accompanied by some kind of visible sign, okay? It doesn't happen now, but this is for the early church. So that if you look, for example, at Pentecost, right, in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples finally receive the, the promised Spirit, what happens? There are these tongues of fire that appear over their heads, right? So there's some sort of visual, visible sign, right? And so the Spirit delays until Peter and John can arrive. Why? Why does the Spirit delay? The reason is because the Spirit was a sign of inclusion. The Spirit was a sign of inclusion. The Spirit meant that you were a believer, that you were a a genuine Christian, that you were accepted by God. And, And we know that this is the right interpretation because this comes into play later on with the story with Cornelius. You see, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius. And if there's anyone more reprehensible to Jews than Samaritans, it was Cornelius. Because Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Not only was he a pagan Gentile, he was a Roman military official. The very embodiment of the oppression of Israel. And so Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and then he goes back to the church in Jerusalem, and he gives his report. And I want to read to you that report, because it's very key to understanding this whole story. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 11. Listen carefully. As I began to speak about the gospel to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Right? He's talking about Pentecost. If then God gave the same gift as he gave us, the Spirit, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And listen, okay? When the council heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, the clinching argument, the clinching argument to the Jewish believers that the Gentiles were now in the kingdom was the fact that they had the Spirit. And that's why the Spirit delayed. The Spirit waited until the official representatives, Peter and John, could arrive to witness the Spirit falling down so that the angel world could see something that had never seen before, which is Jews and Samaritans coming together as one people, united in Christ, right? Fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And so what do we learn here? The Samaritans believed that the only way you could secure the blessings of God was through elaborate rituals and magic spells, but they were wrong. God's grace is a gift. The Jews believed that the only way you could secure the blessing of God is by keeping the law and by being Jewish. But they were wrong. God's grace is a free gift. And now you see why the gospel was so attractive in the ancient world, why it just spread like wildfire. Because here was a God who didn't demand sacrifice after sacrifice, payment after payment, law-keeping after law-keeping, but a God whose love and whose healing and whose acceptance was free. Here was a God you could never exhaust who would never be stingy with his love. And that absolutely transformed the Jewish believers. Look at verse 25, the very last verse. Peter and John go back home to Jerusalem. And what do they do on the way? They began to preach the gospel to who? Their age-old enemies, the Samaritans. Jews and Gentiles become brothers and sisters in the, in, in the church. This was amazing in the ancient world. This is amazing because the ancient world was ripped apart by racism. Now, let me apply this to us, okay? We still live in a world ripped apart by racism and hate. I remember the seminal event in my life was when I was in high school. This was uh, when I was a sophomore. This is 1992. This is the Rodney King verdict. If you guys don't know the story, Rodney King was a black man who was pulled over by some white cops. And uh, apparently he had been resisting arrest, and so what did the white cops do? The white cops pulled out their batons, and even though Rodney King was unarmed, they began to beat him to a pulp, to an inch of his life. And the whole thing was captured on video. And there was this national outrage, not just you know, in, the, in the city of LA, everyone was upset, and so those white cops were put on trial for police brutality. And I remember, the, the trial took like a year, and I remember the day of the Rodney King verdict, right? The, the policemen were found not, uh, not guilty. And that very night, uh, a riot broke out in the streets of L.A. Disaffected young men, angry men, many of them blacks, took to the streets, and they started to... Uh, loot stores and to burn down stores. And many of them were Korean-American owned. You guys may not know this, but about 2,200 businesses which were Korean owned, about half of the total businesses burned and looted were Korean owned. And this in a city in which Koreans owned less than 5% of the total businesses. And so the Koreans were being targeted, and the reason why, let me tell you, is because it goes back to an event that happened one year before that. In 1991, a young black teenage girl named Latasha Harlins walked into a Korean-owned liquor store, and uh, she tried to uh, shoplift a bottle of orange juice, a bottle of OJ. And the Korean uh, store owner saw this, and she grabbed Latasha Harlins, trying to prevent her and trying to grab the uh, orange juice back. And Latasha Harlins pushed the Korean store owner and, start, and tried to walk out the store. And what did the store owner do? She reached down beneath her cash register, pulled out a shotgun, and killed Tasha Harlins. Los Angeles, my hometown, is a city incredibly diverse. There's just so many different ethnic groups, but let me tell you, it's not a city of peace. It's a city in which ethnic groups hate each other, misunderstand each other. There's incredible tension and strife. Now, some of you are saying, oh, you know, that's LA. (laughs) Or, oh, that was over 20, that's almost 20 years ago. We're beyond that. Are we? Just this past year, I don't need to remind you, a BART police officer who was white named Johannes Meserly, in attempting to arrest a black man named Oscar Grant, pulled out his gun, even though Oscar Grant was unarmed, and he killed him. And when the Meserly trial, when the Meserly verdict came down, People were, again, angry and upset. And disaffected, angry men took to the streets in downtown Oakland, not at all at the scale of the L.A. riots, but they uh, looted some stores. You see, this is the world we live in. We live in a world ripped apart by racism, if not the hard racism of police brutality and uh, rioting, then the soft racism of people just wanting to cluster and cloister with people who look like them, you know? You always just want to be with your kind. You don't want to step out and sort of engage people who are different than you, who might look different than you. But the gospel tells us otherwise. The gospel compels us to go out and to embrace people who might look different than us, who might talk different than us, who might act different than us, right? One of the core values of Indelible Grace Church, right? when we planted this church, what was one of the core values? That we are a new community. We are a new community based on what? The fact that most of us are Asian? The fact that most of us, you know, we come from a certain socioeconomic background or that we all share certain hobbies? No, we are a new community based on what? The fact that we have all experienced the gospel as a gift. Salvation as a gift. And so one of the great visions that we have here at this church is that we would move out there and to bless the community and engage the community, not just people who act and talk and look like us, but everyone, right? And I know, and you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it's going to be hard, but that's where we're moving towards, all right? So let me, uh, let me close now with a final meditation. I want to read to you a very, very famous verse from Ephesians, and I want to just set the verse up because this is a verse that almost everyone has heard, but let me, let me I want you to hear it with new ears, okay? You need to know something about, uh, uh, about that letter. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. Okay, And Ephesus was the center of ancient magic in the ancient world. Did you know that magical books were called Ephesian letters? And in Acts chapter 19, right, Luke tells a story where, where uh, Ephesian, a whole bunch of Ephesians come to become Christians and a whole bunch of magicians become believers. And as part of their conversion, they bring their magic books to have them burned. And Luke tells us that the value of those magic books was 50,000 drachmas, which is, in modern-day terms, $8 million. They burned $8 million worth of books. This just shows you how deeply immersed the, the city of Ephesus was in magic, okay, in the theology and power of magic. And to the Ephesian Christians, Paul wrote these words. Let me read to you. This will be our last meditation. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. That it's not by our own morality, it's not by our own strenuous effort, but you save us because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus paid the price for us. And now, Lord, may we live out the implications of that gospel. If the gospel is indeed free, I pray that it would just destroy our our ethnic pride or our class pride or our educated pride and it would make us embrace people uh, from all spectrums of life. May we be a church just like the early church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.